The following is sponsored by Reformation Heritage Books, online at heritagebooks.org. Learn more at the conclusion of today's podcast. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. are listening to Mortification of Spin. It's so good to have you with us today. My name is Todd Pruitt. I'm pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I'm joined as always by Carl Truman, who is professor at Grove City College. And uh, Carl, it's good to see you. We're actually recording in person today. So, um, you know, I, I, I can not only see you, but but if I if I so desired I could reach out and touch you, which yes. I won't do. Yes, please don't. I will my, not. my commentary. I, I absolutely yes. will not. And I and I want to ensure, assure everybody who's listening um, that Carl and I, from from if memory serves, have never hugged each other. Not even a side hug. I I think uh, unless my memory blotted it out because it was so traumatic. I think uh-huh. that is a correct. But uh, but this statement. is but this is what I like. So your your wife who is a far superior being than you are. Um, you know, I, I always get a hug from Katrina and, and, but, but, but one of the great things is that the times over the years when my wife has been in the same room with us, she, she will hug you. And, um, just watching your entire awkward, j- just all of the awkward that's in you start yeah, to I'm spill English, out what can I say? In, in these moments of my wife, all uh, extroverted and, and hugging it's, you. It's, it's brilliant. It's why I love lockdown. <laughs> a, I didn't have to, I didn't have to meet people. B, when I did meet people, they didn't want to hug me. Well, yeah, was, well, that's uh, true. I didn't have to fight them off. So, that's good. Uh, so I, I, I just, I, I want our audience to know we are social distanced, even though uh, technically we don't have to be, we choose to be. Yeah. Um, today, so that's good. Um, well, Carl, we've got a uh, a returning guest with us today, which proves that there are quite a few people out there that are willing to risk their reputation. The triumph of hope over experience, absolutely. As, uh, Dr. Johnson would have said about second marriages, actually. I think was the, uh, the <laughs> okay. Well, our guest today is uh, Dr. Neil Shinvey, and uh, our listeners, many of our listeners, will know who he is. He has been a a, a, a public apologist, if you like, a um, uh, lot of his work dealing with the rise of critical theory, its influence in the church. He's written um, extensively on the issue. His website is a veritable treasure trove of um, great resources on how we should, how we can think Christianly um, in terms of, of critical theory. Um, and, and critical race theory and, and various permutations. And so he's kind of been for a number of years now, sort of a one-stop shop um, in dealing with that issue. But he's just recently through Crossway um, released a new book called Why Believe a Reasoned Approach to Christianity, which is uh, a really wonderful popular level apologetics book. And uh, we'll get into um, some of the content in just a moment, but um, I, I've, I've already 
given copies of this to people in in my church. It's a really terrific, um, accessible, and in a lot of ways comprehensive book on on various intellectual and moral challenges to Christianity and uh, and the veracity of Scripture, et cetera, and how we can answer that. It also uh, goes a long way in in presenting not only the intellectual but the moral viability of of the Christian God, of the Christian faith, and along the way presents the gospel quite skillfully as well. Uh, so our guest is Neil Shinvey. Uh, Neil, great to have you with us again today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Todd and Carl. Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, you, you've, as I mentioned, you've been very helpful um, in, in your work dealing with, uh, uh, with critical theory. Um, but, but that's been really just a part of your larger concern for quite a while, which is apologetics in general. In your website, you've been doing more broad apologetics, not just responses to critical theory. And so this book kind of flows out of, of what has been for some time a, a matter of great interest for you. Is, is that pretty accurate? Yeah, I actually began my quote unquote career in apologetics as a graduate student talking to atheists about mm-hmm. Christianity and trying to share the gospel with my very intellectual colleagues. I had a, have a PhD in theoretical chemistry. And so all of the stuff about critical theory only really arose much later. Right. Really, when I was finishing this book, I finished the first draft in 2016 and then began looking for other projects. And that's when I began writing about critical theory. But this so this precedes, I'd say, all of those right. um, more recent concerns. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, in terms of who your audience is uh, with this book, who did you have in mind specifically as you were writing? So I, I had in mind college students, but in particular, I wanted a book that college students, even college students at elite universities, could hand to their professors. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of great apologetics books out there right now, mm-hmm. but Many of them are written very broadly, uh, and I, I really enjoy them. So classic example is Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, which sure. I, I, I enjoyed. I thought it was a good book, but I would feel uncomfortable handing that to a college professor or yeah. my, even my colleagues, uh, not because it's wrong, but because it, it's, it's written at a very accessible level. And right. I wanted something that had more intellectual heft mm-hmm. behind it. Mm-hmm. I had footnotes and had, had clearly uh, was citing and quoting atheist scholars at length in, in addressing their arguments directly. So I, and, and that was just because I wanted people to feel like, no, this is not a, um, I'm not dumbing this down. Right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm representing the Christian faith at a high intellectual level mm-hmm. at the same time. That's something that people can understand. I don't right. want this to be totally opaque to say a high school student. So I was trying to really find a happy medium between accessibility and also, also intellectual depth. Mm-hmm. And I found that you did that. Uh, you know, you mentioned the, the lengthy quotes. One of the things I appreciated about the book is that as you begin to quote uh, atheists and, and skeptics and those who are hostile towards Christianity, um, you are not so quick to, to pull the trigger on them um, so, so that uh, someone, a skeptic that I could put this book in their hands, they're going to have a hard time accusing you of being unfair or, or not giving um, a, a, a proper voice uh, to atheists because you, do, you, you go quite a bit in representing them in such a way that I think they would say, yes, that is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, I was looking yeah. through the um, the index the other day, and I think I probably cite C.S. Lewis more than anyone else, but the number two author I cite might be either Richard Dawkins or Bart Ehrman. 
So, yeah. you know, I, I really try to draw heavily. And then I think Tim Keller is probably a distant fourth. <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. not sure. But yeah, I hope that came through that I was trying to do my homework, do the reading. And actually, I cut my teeth in apologetics uh, way back when at a friend of a friend's atheist blog. Mm-hmm. And I was challenged there to read a book he recommended. And I did. And then that got me, uh, you know, into reading the primary sources. So I, you know, I, I, my bookshelf behind me, it's 80% atheist and progressive scholars. Right. Uh, it's not, you know, so I've spent most of my time in the last five, 10 years reading voices that I would be inclined to discount because of my evangelical Christian faith. But I right. really want to know what are the best arguments from the other side. One of the things that strikes me, Neil, looking back really over my own life, I guess, is that when I was at college in the 1980s, the the primary objections to Christianity seemed to be what I would regard as uh, logical or epistemological ones. Maybe we were living in the, in the last days of, of sort of logical positivism or something. Uh, today, my impression is, even teaching at a Christian liberal arts uh, college, that the the challenges that young Christians feel to their faith, and certainly the objections that a lot of young atheists make to the Christian faith, are are moral in their characterization. And I, I think this is not unconnected to the rise in popularity of, of critical theory. Uh, how do you see your book addressing the the moral objections to Christianity? What do, what do you think Christians need to be aware of, and, and what strategies? Do you think are appropriate in addressing the, the the moral objections that now seem so powerful against Christianity? Right. So I, I agree with you, Carl, that that what my kids and all, all of our kids are going to be facing in the next, say, 5, 10, 20 years are not going to be the objections of, say, the new atheists, people mm-hmm. like Dawkins, Harris, Dennett, people that I interface with in this book. Those are the old objections that maybe I faced or that you faced in college. They're going to be facing questions like, well, isn't Christianity oppressive? And doesn't it oppress women and, and minorities and LGBTQ people? And and therefore, it must be false. And so one way to respond to that challenge is to say, well, no, if you read the Bible carefully and interpret the text properly, then yes, it will challenge your assumptions, and but it's not as bad as you think. And here's why Christianity actually is morally good and beautiful. That's one approach, and I think it's it's valid. But the other approach is to actually what, do what I did primarily, which is to say, well, if it's true, it doesn't matter whether you like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I draw the parallel at the end of the book between Christianity and, and or theology and science done properly. Well, as a scientist, I have my preferred theories. I have things I like to believe. I have, you know, my pet projects. But at the end of the day, I have to let nature tell me what reality actually is like, and then reform my beliefs to that reality. And so the other way to approach this topic of, well, is Christianity good, is to say, well, if it's true, then it's just true, and you have to deal with it. And so Mm -hmm. I I, I pitched my book in some ways as, uh, Keller wrote a great book that I really enjoyed called Reason for God. And I, I used to hand those out at Yale at the dining halls as part of like a, a campus ministry. And, um, and, and at, the, at the time, again, people were asking questions like, is it, is it good? Well, I, and I, I write that I like the book a lot and it tends to lean on that. Yeah, well, here's why Christianity is actually good and beautiful and appealing. But I pitched my book as a reason for God for STEM majors, meaning science, technology, engineering, mathematics majors who are much more focused on sort of reason and evidence and true and question of true and false and then basically say well if it is true then i have to reorient my life around it whether or not i like it Mm 
and allow it to challenge my assumptions about what is good and beautiful, rather than saying, no, I have to make it to conform to my ideas about goodness and beauty first, and then I'll consider whether it's true. So I think both actually, both strategies are potentially valid, right? I think the Bible does say, well, Christianity is good and beautiful, and it is, but also that you, ha- you can't let your feelings dictate what you accept as true. That's not how we do science or engineering or really anything. Um, and so I, I, I lean on that latter approach more heavily in this book. Mm-hmm. Neil, as, as a scientist, I know you, you think about this a lot and you write about this in your book. Um, the, the whole idea of, of God's book of nature or natural mm-hmm. revelation, what even the unbeliever can look at and, uh, you know, what we can't not know. What role does appealing um, to what God has made plain even to the person without the scriptures? What, what role does this natural revelation go into our, our constructing a po- an apologetic with an eye towards evangelism for the person who's, who's really oriented towards the sciences? How, you know, how, how do you tend to go about appealing um, to, to you know, what Paul affirms in Romans chapters 1 and 2 about what God's written across creation and, and Romans chapter 2, what God's written on the conscience even of, of the unbeliever? Mm-hmm. Um, how much do you appeal to that in your apologetic? And, and why is it important for Christians to at least have a working knowledge of those categories of, of general revelation and natural revelation. Yeah. You know, there are two dangers here. One is to discard the very idea of general revelation or natural Mm -hmm. revelation. The idea that God speaks to us through his works in nature and just discard that and say, no, God only speaks through scripture Mm -hmm. and through special revelation. Well, that's again, that would fly in the face of the, I'd argue the entire Christian tradition, mm-hmm. including the Protestant tradition. So we don't want to do that. On the other hand, you can fall into the error of thinking that, well, God is just, he's, his revelation in nature is sufficient. All you need to know, God's declared in nature, which is also to fall into an equally dangerous error and think we don't really need to think to put priority on his words in scripture. And if you look at Romans is a great place to look at that doctrine of general revelation and it's, and it's, um, sufficient, whether it's sufficient, because Paul will say, well, God's made a plane. Mm-hmm. His, his existence and his quality, divine qualities are right there for all of us to see. He's revealed it to us in nature. Yeah. So on the one hand, you want to, you have to affirm that it's in the Bible. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, Romans two and three, but we're fallen and Romans one, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So it's not going to be sufficient. Why? Because it's, it's in itself, not him speaking clearly. No, it's because of our hearts. Mm-hmm. So we have to hold up both of those doctrines that yes god has spoken clearly you have everything you need to know about him in nature to know he's there but that condemns us because we suppress that truth so that's why in the book i'll say oh it's here here are the arguments it's there the evidence is written all over nature all over it's on your heart you know it's the truth and yet i also am very clear to present the gospel because the problem lies in our hearts and how does god change the sinful hardened human heart via the power of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to actually make it, those arguments compelling to us. Not that they're not true or good, but that we are blinded to them until we hear God's voice speaking the gospel to us and then are regenerated. Mm-hmm. One of the things uh, that, that has struck me over recent years, uh, Neil, is reading Charles Taylor. I'm a huge Charles Taylor fan on a lot of points. And he makes the argument that modernity, a lot of Christians misunderstand modernity because we tend to see it as a a straight fight between believers and unbelievers. 
And Taylor makes the point that no, unbelief itself is, is somewhat variegated, that you have what he calls humanists, of which I think Steven Pinker would be uh, a good example, and Nietzschean anti-humanists, of which somebody like Michel Foucault or, or Camille Pallier would be an example. And, and he, he says what's interesting is that when you place Christians in a context where you have humanists and Nietzschean anti-humanists, on, on any given issue, the, the allies will line up differently. Mm. Is there a moral structure to the universe? Well, the Christian will be on board with Steven Pinker at that point. Uh, is uh, humanity fundamentally depraved? Well, the Christian will line up with the, the Nietzschean anti-humanist. Does God exist? Well, the humanist and the Nietzschean anti-humanist line up against the Christian. Mm. Um, what do you think of that that model? I, I, I think I, as I was reading your book, I, I, I had it sort of echoing in my head. You seem to be sort of sensitive to that. How, how would you uh, advise, if you like, young Christians to think about that relative to apologetic strategies with friends? Yeah, I, I agree with that picture. And I think actually uh, current events have really shown how um, how – allies can shift depending on the issue. So what's been interesting is that there are a lot of secular people, secular classical liberals who are quote unquote anti-woke, who realize that this critical theory narrative has taken over our culture. It's very dangerous it's, uh, and, and they're against it. But then when you look at the recent Dobbs decision, uh, you know, overturning Roe versus Wade, many of these people who are allies of Christians who are also concerned about wokeness, who are speaking out against it, the very same people who are our allies on that issue are very pro-choice and and so then you're like wow it's really vertigo if you if you think of your of, of people as on teams well they're on my team you suddenly find well no actually they're not because they're not christians so we have to be very careful and aware of the fact that really the only they're only really ultimately two quote-unquote teams there there's the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of the city of god and there's the two categories we have for ultimately for human beings. And we want to well, want to call all people, whether they're on our team with respect to some particular issue, if they're not Christian, we want to call them to repentance and faith in Christ and never become so tribalistic that we're like, well, you know, sure, he's not a Christian, but he's really right on this one issue. Therefore, he's part, part of my tribe. Well, no, your tribe, if you're a believer in Christ, is other believers in Christ. It's the church. And the body of Christ, and so yeah, we, I think it's it's fine, totally fine, to make those temporary alliances to see and to affirm that yeah, you're thinking rightly about say the fact there is a moral reality, there is like Pinker affirms there is a complex human nature that we can't just we're not just blank slates. I quote extensively from Pinker actually um, in his denunciation of this blank slate doctrine. I think he's absolutely right, and it's very biblical, and yet. I have to recognize we're going to disagree fundamentally about lots of things because he's not a believer. Mm. It's interesting. I, I do um, a lot of my sermon prep in a, in a coffee shop in the community that I, that I live in because it gives me, well, I need the caffeine and it gives me an opportunity to, to bump into church members uh, on an almost daily basis. But the other thing that's happened over the last two years is I've developed a friendship with um, a professor at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, but, but which is about 50 minutes away, but he lives in our community and um, he's a Marx, a very committed Marxist socialist, um, very much a man of the left. He uh, uh, writes a, an online Marxist journal and mm -hmm. he's very committed to the revolution, so to speak. And of course, not surprisingly an atheist. He's also, and this goes into what you just said. He's also highly anti-woke. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. He laments, he, he grieves over the condition of the American university system, which he says the American university is nothing but a, an indoctrination uh, center uh, for uh, for the Democratic Party, and Advocacy, yet, and yet, not education. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and but but he's he himself is a committed man of 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 the left, and so uh, he and, he and I will end up at the same table about at least two times a week. Two grumpy old men. Two grumpy old <laughs> men in this cafe, me, making me everybody working, miserable. Yes. Me working on a sermon. He he working on another book or on his Marxist online journal, and he'll ask me all of these questions. He was raised in a Christian home. Uh, in high school, his father made him memorize New Testament Greek, um, so he learned New Testament Greek. He was a student. He, he did his undergraduate at University of Virginia under Robert Louis Wilkin as a religion major. Wow. Yeah. Robert's a friend. Uh, yes. I, I must, mm-hmm. You must give me this guy's name. I, 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 I will do so. Loved, loved Wilkin, but even as a student there, even as a religion undergraduate, uh, he, was, yeah. he was an atheist, wow. but, but the topic fascinated yeah. him. Well, I, I, I say that to say, we have great conversations. I have pretty good answers to some of the the objections he raises. I've learned some of these things over the years. He's kind of amazed that a pastor without a PhD can engage him on some of these subjects. But what? But going back to a point you made earlier, Neil, I always just get him back to the gospel in our conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what we talk about, I in, and, and he'll say that he'll lament the condition of the university system of you know all of these woke problems he's very concerned about the the you know just the the out of control trans narrative and yet he's still a man of the left and and i'll say i'll say you know i'll say his name and i'll say that this is all a manifestation of sin and um and i remember the very first time i used romans one on him this just goes to show his religious training i said you know that god is you have a god haunted conscience and you can't avoid hmm. it and he said you're using romans one on me <laughs> um but but ev- almost every conversation before i leave or if he leaves first i'll say remember um jesus died for sinners the tomb is empty and jesus is lord and you're going to acknowledge it one day hmm. and i'm here for you when you're ready to do that. And he'll say, he'll laugh and say, give him a hug. Well, he'll he'll laugh and say something about whenever you're willing, willing, whenever you're ready to get on board with the enlightenment, I'm here for you. But, but the point is I I have a lot of, he heard the gospel as a child. um, And he's going to hear the gospel from me. And I still believe with the apostle Paul that the gospel is the power of God. Some of his intellectual arguments, I've got some good answers for. Um, but ultimately, it's going to come down to the power of the gospel, and I and I appreciate that. That's kind of the trajectory of your book as well. Yeah, I mean the the final section of my book um, is all about the gospel, and actually, our, my final argument is that the gospel itself is the best argument yeah. or best apologetic for Christianity, which I think is a. I mean, a lot of the book is standard stuff. You get the resurrection, the trilemma, things that the moral argument. But there are a few things that I think actually are fairly new that I haven't read before personally. And one of them is the idea that the, the gospel itself is an argument, the best yes. argument for the objective truth of Christianity. And that I'm hoping that surprises Christians when they hear that and they're like, what? Because as an apologist, I've always heard or absorbed or, you know, that the idea that, well, we do apologetics first mm-hmm. to sort of clear the ground for a presentation of the gospel. It's sort of like the groundwork foundation. And once we've answered all their objections and made them realize that Christianity is intellectually credible, mm-hmm. well, that's when you can go ahead and share the gospel. And I'm arguing, no, it's actually almost backwards that yes. the gospel itself mm-hmm. is the best argument. 
and and you don't need anything else. It's sufficient in order to not just to, to convert people, which I agree, it's the power of God, but also to give them a justification, yes. an intellectually justification for believing that Christianity is the one true religion. Which again, that's that's like in the final where the, the chapters seven through nine are all about that argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me, I, I don't often quote Karl Barth, I don't often quote him positively, but I remember Barth writing somewhere that uh, the best form of apologetics is a good dogmatics, mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. the declaration of what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and reflection upon that. And I think uh, that comes out nicely in your book, uh, Neil. And I think one of the things that you're pointing towards as well uh, is the... Uh, the idea that I, I would say apologetics is not just for the unbeliever. Um, I find increasingly yes. dealing with college students, good kids who trust the Lord for their salvation, believe the Bible is true, want to live lives of principled discipleship, but the pressures are such in the world around, and they come continually from all directions that they too need an apologetic. That, that they, I'm getting this need, book to our yeah. RUF director they need to, to be, get his students. Yeah. They yeah. need to be reminded. We all need to be reminded that the faith makes sense of, of reality. Um, so, so, Neil, it's been great having you on as a guest. We want to commend your book, well, commend your website, but also your book, Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity, published by Crossway to our audience. Uh, if anyone listening would like a chance to uh, obtain a free copy, please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, and enter there for an opportunity uh, to win such a copy. Uh, if uh, Otherwise, if, you, if you're not fortunate enough to, to get a free copy, buy a copy, read it. Buy a copy to, to give away to young people in your church, to unbelieving friends. Uh, Neil, I want to thank you for all your works, particularly your work on critical theory, but also for your contribution to the church in terms of this great new book, and wish you well. And again, our listeners, please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. We are a listener-supported podcast. If you feel led to make a donation, uh, please do. Uh, Otherwise, we look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. to wear a thong should have to go through an application process. (laughs) How old are you? 
Well, when's your birthday? Uh, February 17th. Now, what year is your birthday? Every year. <laughs> you ask. Reformation Heritage Books is a publisher and bookseller whose mission it is to equip the saints to serve Christ and His Church through biblical, experiential, and practical resources. Reformation Heritage Books reading material is God-glorifying and in accord with Scripture and historic Reformed creeds for the promotion and defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each book published or sold, whether from the Puritans or modern-day authors, subscribes to the three forms of unity, that is, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort, as well as the Westminster Standards. To learn more and to browse the impressive inventory of available resources from trusted Reformed writers, visit heritagebooks.org.